I'm going to present a rather more sceptical view, and uh, I suppose also one that links back to the history and policy theme of how we can learn from history and what, what are the lessons of history. Uh, I've used the, the title Industrial Relations and the Limits of the State uh, from this classic Warwick book, uh, which was Industrial Relations and the Limit of the Law in 1975, which is a critique of the, uh, the, the, the 1971 Industrial Relations Act, that Edward Heath Industrial Relations Act. And I, I'm, I'm going to focus, uh, there's lots of things I agree with uh, Joe's presentation, and I agree that it would be better if we had more trade union members in Britain and more recognition and so forth. But I want to I focus on a particular controversial argument which has developed recently, this idea that we can revive sectoral bargaining in some sort of silver bullet that's going to turn around British industrial relations. So can a Labour government resurrect sector bargaining is going to be my, my theme. Um, and I think it's worth from an academic point of view, worth registering how new this <coughs> stuff is, you know. Suddenly, sectoral, sectoral collective bargaining is the new comprehensive IR system of the future. You know, this, nobody was talking about this a few years ago, and I, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. You know, so the, 19, so the 1917 Labour Manifesto promised to roll out sectoral bargaining. 2017, thank you, Dave. <laughs> Oh, you're always useful member of the audience, Dave. Um, I thought perhaps it was part of Whitley. Apart from glaring at me. Um, the the uh, Labour Manifesto uh, 2017 promised to roll out sectoral collective bargaining because the most effective way to maintain good rights at work is collectively through a trade union. Now, I asked a Labour MP, where did this come from, sort of thing, and he said he didn't have a clue, really, you know. And I think and there's a very clear answer. It comes from this, this report, which I wasn't aware of, the Institute of Employment Rights Report, the Manifesto for Labour Law 2016. And, Joe, and Joe's report, which comes later, which I've also read, Power to the People, How Stronger Unions Can Deliver Economic Justice, is a sort of more moderate, more cautious version in which I can sort of agree with many parts. But I'm going to focus particularly on the Institute of Employment Rights Report, because I think it, it raises some quite sort of fundamental issues here. And if you, take the, if you take that report seriously and you take Labour's statement seriously, what we're talking about here is a dramatic state-led return to the single union channel and to institutional tra trade union rights on, on a big scale right across the board. So we're, we're going back to that sort of Trade Unions and Labour Relations Act uh, period. Uh, all the things that have been lost since 1979. Uh, and it's a particularly legal view. One of the interesting things, if you look at the, uh, the report, is nearly all the signatories are Labour lawyers, even leading left-wing industrial relations academics like Richard Hyman and um, John Kelly are not, not signatories. So it's a very legal view, and it breaks with a, what I would see as a UK industrial relations debate, which has gone on for most of my career last 30 years or so, between pluralists and radicals. And that debate's been rooted in the sort of uh, empirical studies of the changing in human resource management and the sociology of the workplace. And it's been a debate between people like myself, who've argued for workplace partnership between trade unions and management, and, and people uh, like, say, John Kelly, who've argued for militant organizing as a way for unions to rebuild themselves. Um, <coughs> 
And there's been another strand, which has been the European strand particularly, you know, an emphasis on individual employment rights, on works councils, information and consultation. And our book that came out you know, only, only in 2015 is totally dominated by those sort of debates. So this stuff comes as quite a big surprise to people like me, it sort of came out, came out of left field. It also, as I mean, Joe, Joe's pointed a lot of this out already, it goes against the reality of voice in, in British IR today. You know. So the situation, you know, when you've got uh, union density down to about a fifth of the workforce, um, mainly in the public sector, very low in the private sector, very low among young people, collective bargaining about a quarter of coverage, uh, about a quarter of the workforce, nearly all at workplace and enterprise level. So very little sectoral collective bargaining. And you know, to add to that, you've got a very different economy to 1979. You've got a service economy with 8% manufacturing. Most employees have got no contact with trade unions. Most have never had any contact, or probably a very high proportion, never had any contact with trade unions. Now, and the argument from, from uh, the, the IER, and to some extent Joe really, is that that's the reason why you've got to do something now. It's like, it's too little, too late, we've got to do something now. But I, I don't buy that that's a realistic sort of policy. And I want to put sort of four tests um, of the sort of IER approach. And the first test is, is to look at industrial relations history and trying to understand and explain the rise and fall of, trade un of UK trade unions. And obviously, you know, if we go for a benchmark, 1979, they peak at 55% union membership and 75% collective bargaining coverage. But it's an important thing to mention, which the IER report doesn't mention at all, is that actually um, sectoral collective bargaining collapsed a long time before then. So UK private sector industry bargaining collapsed from the 1950s onwards, and John has written a, a nice piece in Historical Studies IR to show you know, that trade unions probably regret that happening, but it, it started to happen in the 1950s. Um, and it was often due to trade union pressure for workplace bargaining. And it was abandoned as public policy uh, at Donovan you know, because of people like Hugh Clegg and Alan Flanders felt that it, it, it wasn't viable anymore. And there were voices, I mean, Ben Roberts, who, who argued to revive sectoral collective bargaining at that time. Uh, main voices mainly on the right wing of the Labour movement. And I think, so that's the, I think that's the first thing to say, this, this is long gone. It's not something that's, you know, we can just, just in a bit of trouble we can revive. The other point to make is that where it survives in continental Europe, it, it survives to a large extent through PAF dependency, which enables continental unions, employers in the state to maintain it. So there's not been a big industrial relations crisis in most uh, North European countries like there was in 1979 in Britain. So there's, there's not been a, a, a breakdown of the system. That it's just carried on by inertia. And so if you're talking about rebuilding a system from scratch, you're talking about something very different from maintaining a system that already exists. Now I think one of the important IER claims to challenge, which Joe to some extent echoes, although in a more, sort of, a more complex way, is that the state destroyed collective bargaining so the state can bring it back. And I think that's an oversimplistic misreading of, of, Brit of British IER history. 
There's a suggestion in the IAR report that, you know, which I, again I think reflects the legal bias of that, that report. The suggestion that the 1918 Whitley reports basically almost created national collective bargaining. Uh, and there's a suggestion also that 1980s Tory laws, Tory laws more or less destroyed it single-handed. And I think the important point to make here from the point of view of industrial relations history is that they were both part of a longer process of IR, economic and social change. To use Alan, to use Alan Fox's famous term, that cut, cut with the grain. So that the, the law was, came in at a particular moment and it cut with the grain in more wider socio-economic trends. So national collective bargaining, or we can call it now sectoral collective bargaining, already had great momentum at the start of the 20th century, long before the Whitley Report, even before the, the First World War. And in the same way, trade unions in Britain were in deep trouble by the late 1970s. And the, the, the figure that's quoted in, in um, Joe's report, that 80% of people in 1979 thought British trade unions had too much power, shows you know, how significant the crisis of British trade unions was, the political crisis of British trade unions. So I think it fails that first sort of historical test. The second test, I would call like a political sociology test, which is where does trade union power come from in a liberal democracy? And my argument is that trade union power, unlike many Marxists who think trade union power is mainly about bargaining power, it's sort of economic power, I think trade union power in a liberal democracy is a form of soft political power primarily. And so strong trade unions and collective bargaining depend on the consent of what I call the diamond of stakeholders. Employees, employers, public opinion, the state. And when I say the, when I say the state, I mean also different political parties. Because during the period when, when collective bargaining has grown, there's been bipartisan support for it. And it, that's something that's very much worth remembering. And my argument would be in 1979, what happened really was that the trade unions lost the support of most of that diamond of, of uh, stakeholders. And in a sense, the, the, the task now for trade unions, is to, and has been for a long time, is to regain that soft power. And I, I, I would pose here uh, a, an instance from New Labour. I mean, I, I think any attempts to bypass simply th those stakeholders and just a Labour government just to use state power to impose sectoral bargaining on society is likely to fail. And I think the national minimum wage is a good example of a, of a, a good policy model, a social partnership process that actually, over a period of time, over a decade, has won employer support, public support, Tory support, and actually, and actually embedded an institution in British society. You can't imagine a government coming to power now that's, that's actually going to repeal that, that legislation. And I think we should bear that in mind as a model when we think about bringing in industrial relations change. Test three, economics. Um, and the, the claims that we're getting, which, I mean, Joe's diagrams are um, illustrated, but the IER uses very similar arguments that of the efficiency and income inequality gains. I think are overgeneralized, and I think they're based on big stats. I think we need a more contextual understanding of how trade unions operate in society, and I think national industrial relations context is crucial. 
that actually abstract institutions just creating, say, sectoral bargaining wouldn't solve problems without dealing with some of the other issues. And one of, one of the, well, I'll come back to that, actually. And, and obviously that, that brings us back to our uh, discussion earlier about the 1960s, 1970s UK, which had strong collective bargaining, but what, that was not an era of efficiency or incomes equality in many ways. Uh, it was associated, in terms of efficiency, it was associated with strikes, restrictive practices, inflation, a declining industrial economy. But it, I think even more controversially, in terms of equality, a lot of people at the time, uh, including uh, Barbara Castle, but uh, the person I've written stuff about, Barbara Wooten, who's one of the leading um, socialist labour economists of the time, described free collective bargaining over and over again, all through the 50s and 60s and 70s, as smash and grab. And her argument basically was a fragmented uh, industrial relations system with lots of conflict in it was benefiting certain skilled, high-paid groups of men and, was not, and was, was not distributing income across, across the working population. So I think that there's a real issue that we shouldn't assume that all, times of, all types of, bar, of collective bargaining will deliver equality. My argument would be that uh, outcomes depend on active union behaviour. Um, and I think if, we, if, we, if, we, if we're talking about uh, improved productivity, we're talking about trade unions that work closely in workplace partnership with employers to, uh, to deliver flexibility and stuff like that. And, and the, IE, the IER report doesn't mention partnership at all, doesn't mention any of those positive aspects of union behaviour. And to be fair, Joe, you don't mention workplace partnership at all in your, in your discussion either. You talk about corporate partnership, but not, not actually workplace partnership. But more importantly is, is the nature of bargaining. And I think if you go and look at something like the Swedish LO, and look at the way they've worked so hard to keep bargaining at, at, a, at a sectoral level and at a national level, and how when bargaining's been moved down to uh, workplace level, they fought to bring it back up. And also the way in which uh, uh, the, the LO was concerned about the competitiveness of the Swedish economy. They actually created a system where uh, the public sector pay rises couldn't, couldn't be higher than the competitive export industries. These sort of things are the sort of things you have to do if you're going to have solidist, solidaristic bargaining. So I think there's no point in just saying sectoral collective bargaining will do it. I think you have to have a, a vision of what trade unions do and the character of trade unions to win that argument. For, my fourth test is political philosophy. I think if you, go, if you go for this really heavy sectoral bargain argument where the state is going to come in and basically reinvent sectoral bargainings and almost reinvent trade unions. It's going to basically put trade unions in places where they haven't been for years, in effect. You've got to have a pretty good ethical argument that wins, that wins the argument with people. And there's, there's two issues that come up with the IER report, which I think are less prominent in Joe's approach, but certainly with the IER approach. Uh, the, the issue of free trade unions and the issue of, of worker rights and what and what do rights actually mean? Now, if we take the first issue, which is a major part of industrial relations <coughs> pluralism that people like Hugh Clegg believed in, was this idea of free trade unions. Uh, that trade unions are voluntary civil society organisations. 
Now, neither Clegg nor I were naive in the sense they realised trade unions couldn't function without recognition, and they realised that trade unions needed some state support. But some of the techniques that have been suggested, I mean, Gregor Gohl's written stuff about uh, the idea of union default membership, uh, and you've talked about auto-enrolment. I think some of these ideas start to make the trade union so dependent on the state that they're, bare, they're, bare, they're, they're sort of parastate organisations. And I think that's one thing we've got to start thinking about. The second thing is rights. I mean, it's Jeremy Bentham uh, said that rights were nonsense on stilts. Um, and I think the way a lot of people use rights nowadays, there's some truth in that. Because everyone says, oh, we're going to have more rights. But obviously rights have to be balanced with other people's rights. And I, I was thinking of Barbara Castle's comment about rights and responsibilities. And the remarkable thing about the, um, the, the IER report is that it, it puts a massive amount of state resources into rebuilding sectoral bargaining, rebuilding trade unions, and then it says they're going to be completely autonomous and free, and they're not going to have any restrictions on them, and they're going to repeal all the current trade union legislation since 1979. Now, I think... And it, that touches into a bigger question is, can union institutional right, rights be conflated with employee rights so that they trump everything else? You know? So can you say that unions which have 20% of, yeah, of the membership or 25% of the membership at the uh, of the workforce at the moment are basically going to be given rights over the whole workforce? Um, and then on the other hand, what about the, if, you, if you withdraw all those rights about secondary picketing and ballots and things, what about the rights of individual employees who don't want to belong to trade unions? What about the rights of small employers who will be affected by secondary action? What, are, what about the rights of service users, say in the National Health Service, who might be affected by, by strikes? What about the rights of other citizens who might have to pay for these things? And I think if we're going to be serious about using a rights argument, we have to put all the different factors in. Um, so my conclusion, in a way, is that there is no big industrial relations quick fix. And there's no way of returning to a single union channel. I think the single union channel has actually be, has been for quite a long time a, an actual an obstacle to uh, the development of a worker voice in Britain probably since the Bullock Report, when there could have been, there could have been 1977, there could have been a, a resolution of the Bullock Report which, which didn't involve the trade union, pure trade union channel. I think ever since then it's been, it's been an obstacle. Um, I think there's, a, there's strong sectoral bargaining in places like Germany and Sweden, and they're obviously the, the model that we look to, but that, that is driven by civil society actors, that's driven by very strong employers associations, a group that doesn't get any mention at all in the IER report, really. I mean, they're completely absent, this crucial agent in, in sectoral collective bargaining. And th those organisations, I'm not an expert, but I don't think much exists of um, um, employers associations as collective bargaining bodies in the British private sector. So these institutions are very weak in the UK. I don't think the state can or should create civil society from above without threatening its autonomy. So I think we have to think here about how far trade unions are going to remain autonomous civil society organisations. I don't think voice can conscript employees into trade unions. Uh, that any form of voice that we're going to look for in the future when, uh, would has to speak for all employees. And we have to think about how we're going to make it speak for 
all employees. So my, my suggestion, which is not a, a, a great panacea or anything, in, is to basically look towards what I call mixed economy of voice. And I can see some overlap with, with some of what Joe's saying there. We've got a diverse and individualistic society that makes collective voice much more complex than it was under the old sort of industrial society, uh, traditional working class trade unions and stuff like that. And even if you look at somewhere like Germany, I mean, Germany has recently conceded a national minimum wage. Now, the IER is arguing, in, effe in effect, <coughs> that sectoral collective bargaining will replace all that, almost. You know, but Germany's had to concede a national minimum wage. They, they've got a, a, even Germany's got a sort of mixed economy. Um, I think UK institution, the UK needs collective voice institutions that empower all employees at work. Uh, I think the p if we're going to look for in a direction, I don't have a, a particular institutional formula here, but if we're going to look in a direction, we should be looking at something like an elected system of works councils to add to the current mix. Um, a, a, a situation where people would vote directly, all employees would vote directly for representatives, and then trade unions would be given the opportunity of, uh, and should do, do very well, as the German unions do, in terms of competing for that. And, you know, on top of that, the, you know, I, I agree with what Joe said about more support for union recognition and collective bargaining and so forth. But what I'm trying to say is that I think this is a chimera, this idea there's one big silver bullet uh, and that it's sectoral collective bargaining. 